Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello, I'm Charles Sims, your host for In Social Work. Hospital-based violence intervention programs have become an important response to proactively addressing the results of violent confrontations that subsequently arrive at hospital emergency rooms. In developing one of these unique programs, our guests for this podcast discuss their use of a longitudinal ethnographic study of young black men admitted to hospital for treatment of violent injury. The aim is simple, prevent re-injury. Joseph Richardson, Ph.D., is an associate professor in the Department of African American Studies at the University of Maryland at College Park. He is also co-director of the Capital Region Violence Intervention Program. Christopher St. Ville has a Ph.D. and MSW. He is currently an assistant professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. In this podcast, Drs. Richardson and St. Bill discuss their work in trying to better understand this public health challenge that has particular impact on young black men living in urban environments. In the discussion, our guest will review two important components of this work. First, they describe the emerging Capital Region Violence Intervention Program at Prince George's Hospital in Maryland. The mission of the program is to prevent behavior that leads to re-injury and also to reduce criminal activity. Here, they report some findings from the initially mentioned study. Those findings will be used to help them better understand the experiences of those survivors and can be essential to developing responsive programming. Secondly, our guests report on research that they have conducted to better understand the non-fatal use of force by police. This research was especially timely, as in late 2015, the U.S. Department of Justice published a review, their first, on this subject. From their research, Drs. Richardson and Saintville make specific recommendations for how, and more importantly, why, Collecting and interpreting this information is important for program and policy development. Dr. Richardson and Dr. St. Bell were interviewed in November of 2016 by Stephen Swartz. Finally, we would like to apologize in advance. You will find that this episode contains some distortion due to difficulties beyond our control. Today we have with us uh, two distinguished speakers, colleagues, Dr. Joseph Richardson, who's an associate professor at the University of Maryland and is involved in a violence intervention research project that he'll talk about, and uh, one of his collaborators here at the State University of New York and Buffalo School of Social Work, assistant professor, Dr. Chris St. Ville. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Well, collaborations are common but unusual to talk about, and we're going to talk today about a novel hospital-based violence intervention program, which you've creatively titled Who Shot You? So uh, the first question that I had for you is, uh, how did the two of you meet and begin your collaboration? Joe? Chris and I met while doing grant reviews, but we actually became a research team in 2013 when I initiated a study at Prince George's Hospital Trauma Center, which is the busiest level two trauma center in the United States, which serves roughly 700 victims of violent injury a year. We decided to collaborate to do a longitudinal study, ethnographic study over a two-year period where we followed 25 young black men between the ages of 18 and 34 who were treated by Prince George's Hospital trauma by the gunshot wound, stab, or assault. And so we approached all 25 young men at bedside and recruited them. And then from that point, after we received consent, we conducted three waves of interviews over that two-year period, as well as participant observations in the hospital and outside of the hospital on their lives and how they were dealing and coping with their injuries. So that was the basic for your research on risk factors that contributed to repeat violent injury because of what you saw in the hospitals. And was it this study combined with uh, some of the headlines, both at that time and current headlines around police violence, that helped fuel your interest in the study as well, I understand? Exactly. So at the time, there was a significant number of high-profile cases where the police were involved in shootings, and we were really interested in the non-fatal side of police-involved shootings because there hasn't been any data collected by the Department of Justice on non-fatal police-involved shootings in the Department of Justice database. And so as part of our project, we decided to take a segment of our research and focus on on that aspect of our data collection. But what I found really most interesting is that you needed data in order to develop a theory. You didn't go in with a theory and then found data to match it. And that's a, it's a position which has a lot of integrity, trying to develop the data that would then allow you to generate a theory. But you've described the problem in a lot of different ways, not just including the lack of police data. What other issues are there related to the problem of police-related shootings? The lack of data is the number one issue, but it's also in the way that the data is recorded. And so up until October of 2015, the hospitals record all injuries on a coding form called the ICD. It was at the time the ICD-9. It's now the ICD-10. And effective in October 2015, the ICD-10 included coding for law enforcement-related injuries. And so prior to that, hospitals were unable to code for that when they were coding for different injuries or, or mental health disorders or physical disorders or physical problems. They were unable to record for that. As of October 2015, the ICD-10 includes um, ways for trauma staff and hospital staff to document police-involved tality or police-involved injuries. So. There is a mechanism now that hospitals can use nationally and in a uniform, standardized way where they can now record how many people are coming into the hospital who are suffering from injuries that were inflicted by law enforcement. Chris, I understand that just before the publication of your research, the U.S. Department of Justice 
in November 2015, published the first description of police use of non-fatal force between the years 2002-2011. So for the first time, there was some data behind you anyway. Could you describe what some of their findings were and how it confirmed or didn't confirm what your suspicions were? Yeah, absolutely. So the Bureau of Justice Statistics took steps toward developing a police public contact survey in 1995. And so they collected data every three years beginning in 1996 and they stopped collecting data in 2011. However, this is the first report from that data that we know of and that came out a month before our publication came out in November 2015. Well, let me say that this data started being collected in 1996, but they only report from 2002 to 2011. So there's the years 1996 and 98 that they don't talk about. And so the findings pretty much kind of confirm some of the suspicions that many people in the public had. So for example, whites had a higher rate of police contact than blacks and Hispanics. Blacks experienced non-fatal violence at a higher rate than both whites and Hispanics. It's beginning to confirm our suspicions. But once again, this is national data that's accumulated by the National Crime Victimization Survey. These are initial steps that the government is beginning to take, and we're very happy about that. This initial data shows that blacks do experience non-fatal violence at higher rates. And so this is just the beginning, and hopefully they'll continue to collect this data. Do you think you can get access to any of the data since 2011 prior to the publication? This data is a public access data, so yes, researchers should be able to get public use to it through the ICPSR um, network, absolutely. Well, this fills in a major gap. You had identified the problem of lack of data, now you've got it now. You've talked about the difficulties in emergency rooms. It's a place that you've described that the personnel there are really focused on caring for the individual and their injury and have felt at some points uncomfortable about asking information that related to what the cause of the violence was, particularly if it had to do with police-related shooting. But Joe, could you describe your hospital-based violence intervention program and how that's been a link between what used to be the standard kind of medical care and being able to take care of the patients now to get information about the source of their violence? Sure. So. There is a national network of hospital violence intervention programs, which I think are roughly 35 or 36 programs that are around the country, and they're situated in level one and level two trauma units. And what they provide psychological as well as social services to prevent trauma recidivism. And that's fine as being hospitalized two or more times for a violent injury. And so the national rate for trauma recidivism, uh, the range is anywhere between 10 and 60% with an average of 45%. And so in our small study we conducted at Prince George's Hospital, we had 25 young men in our sample and we had a trauma recidivism rate of 32%, which meant that one out of every three young men in our sample had been hospitalized two or more times for a violent injury. And so there's an exorbitant cost that's associated with the return of young men coming back to the hospital, their health care costs, and then also the social costs that they impose on society. And there's also the likelihood of increased mortality for every time that they're injured. So there have been studies that have been conducted which that for every injury a young person suffers, the likelihood of surviving the next injury decreases. Our primary goal was our data to inform the development of our emerging hospital violence intervention program, which is 
Capital Region Violence Intervention Program at Prince George's Hospital Trauma to provide psychosocial services to young men who have been violently injured to prevent them from coming back to our hospital for similar penetrative injury. And we also are targeting criminal recidivism as well because what we're finding is, is that one of the most significant predictors of trauma recidivism is a history of incarceration. And so what we want to do simultaneously is reduce trauma recidivism and criminal recidivism as well. You spent a lot of time interviewing emergency department trauma staff, but what were the kind of challenges that you identified in talking to these emergency department staff in helping them be able to get answers to the questions of who shot you? Well, in our paper, we docked legal, logistical, and attitudinal issues, and a lot of them revolved around whether or not the hospital's job to collect that sort of data, also the fact that they felt uncomfortable actually approaching law enforcement about asking those questions around those sort of issues. But now with the inclusion of legal intervention into the ICD-10, now that makes it standardized where, and it circumvents all of the legal, ethical, logistical, and attitude issues that we cited in our paper that was published in December. What exactly is the category in the ICD-10 where they would report a police-related shooting? In the ICD-10, it's called the external causes of morbidity that's going to be called V00 through Y99. Those are called the external causes of morbidity. And within that, you have codes Y35 through Y38, which talk about the legal intervention, operations of war, military options, and terrorism. So it would be under legal intervention where medical professionals would cite whether someone had come in and were injured through law enforcement. And that reporting will include injury to law enforcement officials as well as suspects and bystanders. So they collect that data for all three of those units. Oh, so it's both bystanders, law enforcement officials, and any of the supposed perpetrators of whatever the crime was. Exactly. So it's a fair standard. Well, that's good. Yes. In the past, we've talked about some of your recommendations, and it turns out that what you recommended at least came to bear, particularly on being able to collect standardized data about police involving shootings. I understand that it's required. Do you know if the hospitals have already started recording this? Do you have any experience well, in Maryland or in here? That we have to follow up on, right? The fact that they included these indicators in the ICD-10 makes this now a standardized measure across all hospitals who use the ICD-10. So because it's standardized, now it takes a follow-up to see how this data is being collected and what the quality of the data is. In the past, you've also recommended that there be federal mandates to collect data and tie the mandates to funding for law enforcement agencies. Will this have solved that, or do you still think that there ought to be an incentive for law enforcement agencies to do their reporting as well? Definitely. So historically, Law enforcement agencies differed in the rate in the way that they provided information. Some law enforcement provided some information, some didn't. So what we need is a consistent participation from law enforcement agencies to provide this information. And well, just recently, in an article printed in the USC Day on October 13th, Loretta Lynch came out basically saying that the federal government is going to be launching a pilot program to collect data on police-involved shootings, which is going to start in early 2017. But what we do know is that the government has had initiatives that required this before. For example, they had the Death and Custody Reporting Act of 2000. Prior to that, there was another mandate. It was called the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, 
where there was another mandate that required the collection of this data. That also required the Attorney General to collect data from law enforcement agencies. So now, this new mandate from Loretta Lynch that she talked about on October 13th in the paper, that's a result of the Death and Custody Reporting Act of 2014. So these last two acts, they required law enforcement agencies to provide information, but they didn't. They did it whenever they felt like doing it or gave the kind of information they wanted to give. So we do believe that penalizing law enforcement agencies by withholding federal funding will get them to start reporting this information. But at the same token, we also do believe that law enforcement agencies should be provided with funding to collect this data. Because once again, law enforcement agencies on average have about 10 police officers to to a precinct, so they need help being able to collect this data in a reliable and efficient way. So we think they deserve the funding. They need the funding to collect the data, but at the same time, if they get the funding to collect the data and then they're not really corresponding with the requirements of the data they need to provide, then they need to be penalized by having their funding withheld. You would advocate for incentivizing them to do the right thing? Absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. And also, so it works out better for them because it's a more transparent process right? It makes it more transparent. It shows the public that the police departments want to control its use of force, that they're being proactive, and also will help the department establish better training programs for these police officers that may be a little overzealous when they encounter citizens in the community. It would also provide a way of comparing the hospital data against the police data. And so we would be able to determine the accuracy of the data and the accuracy of the reporting by having alternate sources of to document police-involved shootings. So it would not only be, be relying on police departments to record the data, but we would also have an alternative uh, source of data collection, which would be the hospital, and we could compare the two. And we cited that in our paper that in the UK, when they compared hospitals and police documenting violence, the hospitals recorded 25 to 50 percent more. Hmm. And so this is also a way for us to triangulate the data in a way where we could confirm whether the police data is accurate through the data we're, we're capturing at the hospital. And you've also made the point that the doctors and nurses can sometimes do what researchers can't do. And so you're using those as allies in order to collect the data and the check. I mean, I think it's a, a real methodological advance. And now has been codified by requirements that they actually do the reporting. I think that'll be interesting. Did you get any responses to your published study that you wanted to talk about? We did. The article was picked up by NPR, caught some national steam, and there's been a lot of debate about it. We're really glad that at the time the article was published, the publishing process kind of lags behind the GB10 coming out in October 2015, we were unable to include that in our paper. But it's great to see that now the ICD-10 includes coding for legal intervention and injury by legal intervention. So I think if anything positive has really come out of it, it's that we had the article picked up by NPR, and now that work has kind of translated into standardized and uniform way for hospitals to collect this kind of data. One of your original recommendations was the need for data collection. That seems to be going. And now the new one has to do with reconciling the requirement that criminal justice record as well as hospital. So you have a way to double check and to verify whether the English experience is happening here as well. Are there next steps that you yeah. want to pursue or advice to people in the community, clinicians, researchers, teachers, about the issue of police-related violence? and black males? 
Well, one, we're really excited about the announcement by Loretta Lynch that they're going to be implementing measures to collect this data in early 2017. I hope that the Bureau of Justice Statistics continue to collect data on police public contact survey. Unfortunately, they stopped collect data in 2011, and this data that was published in November 2015, right before our article, was based on that data from 2002 to 2011. It's confirming the suspicions that people had, you know, that there's a racial bias here going on. When you look at the data also, there's, a, there's like an intersection between race, age, and geographic areas. So it's young black males between the ages of 16 and 25 who live in urban areas who are disproportionately affected by non-fatal police force, okay? And so we're hoping that the Bureau of Justice Statistics continues to collect data on using the police public contact survey so that they can continue to inform the public about this issue and that hopefully they hold them accountable to continue to provide this data so that at the end of the day we can get a, a better picture of what's really going on. Uh, you've identified the highest risk group by what you just said and maybe there's some opportunities for early intervention in this group consistent with some of what your original research ideas were. Well, absolutely. Well, the interventions are going to be based on the data that we collect. And so now that we're beginning to collect data, changes to the ICD-10 is a great start for hospitals. So once again, hospitals are an alternative source to collect this data. We still believe that Loretta Lynch and the Justice Department, they will come up with standardized ways waiting for that to happen, right? 2017, as she said, it's going to happen early 2017. Then we're going to have sources of data from the hospital and from the federal government that's going to provide a much, much clearer picture of how this violence is playing out and who it's affecting. Do you have any kind of last words for our listeners, Joe? My only concern is that there's still no federal mandate that all law enforcement agencies must report. It's still going to be incentivized, but as Chris mentioned, whether the incentives are strong enough to force law enforcement agencies to do it, that's going to be the key in this whole equation of whether the incentives are persuasive enough to convince law enforcement agencies to submit this kind of data, and I, I hope that they do. But we will wait and see. But I think we're I think we're at a good place. Chris, do you have any final words? No, I mean that's it. We're really happy that in the direction that we're going in terms of collecting this data, and once again. Now that we have somewhat of a baseline to begin to look at patterns at a national level to see that this is a problem, now this should be able to begin to drive interventions. But we're hoping that it goes no place but up from this point on. I'm going to quote your last sentence from the research, which I thought was very prophetic. Now, answering the question, who shot you, is the first step toward addressing how the health sector and law enforcement can work together to improve the health of the individuals and communities they have taken an oath to protect and serve. And I know that we'll hear from you again, and I appreciate both of you taking your time in two different places to talk to us today. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you Thank for having you. you have been listening to Dr. Joseph Richardson and Dr. Christopher St. Bell discussing their research in understanding non-fatal violent injury in young black men, as well as implications for program and policy. I'm your host, Charles Sims. We hope you will join us again for another episode at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. 
We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.